Welcome to the Functional Medicine Radio Show with your host, Dr. Carrie Drizga, known internationally as the Functional Medicine Doc. Dr. Carrie is committed to helping patients find the root cause of their health problems and fixing the cause with natural treatments so they can feel normal again. Dr. Carrie is the founder of Functional Medicine Ontario and is the author of the hit book, Reclaim Your Energy and Feel Normal Again. Please welcome your host, Dr. Carrie Drizga. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Functional Medicine Radio Show, the only internet radio show dedicated to giving you real solutions to improve your health. Not only are they real solutions, but they're natural solutions as well, because as you know, the one and only true wealth you have is your health. I'm your host, Dr. Carrie Drizga, the Functional Medicine Doc, and I'm committed to helping you find the root cause of your health problem, fix the cause with natural treatments so you can feel normal again, and live your life to the fullest. Today's topic is the end of Alzheimer's. I'm so very excited about today's show because my special guest is Dr. Dale Bredesen. Let me tell you a little bit about him. Dr. Bredesen received his undergrad degree from Caltech and his medical degree from Duke. He served as resident and chief resident in neurology at UCSF, then was postdoctoral fellow in the lab of Nobel laureate professor Stanley Prusner. Dr. Bredesen was the founding president and CEO of the Buck Institute for Research on Aging and is the director of the Easton Center for Alzheimer's Disease Research at UCLA. His group has developed a new approach to the treatment of Alzheimer's disease, and this approach has led to the discovery of subtypes of Alzheimer's disease, followed by the first description of reversal of symptoms in patients with mild cognitive impairment and early Alzheimer's disease with a RECODE protocol. His latest book is The End of Alzheimer's and is a New York and is a New York Times bestseller. Dr. Bredesen, thank you so much for being my special guest today on this episode of the Functional Medicine Radio Show. Thanks very much for having me, Dr. Carey. You know, it's hard when I mention your book, The End of Alzheimer's, because there's a question mark at the end, and it will be nice when it's just a period at the end, the end of Alzheimer's. I completely agree. You know, this is a huge and growing global problem. As you know, this is now the third leading cause of death in the United States. Dementia is actually now the the number one cause of death in the United Kingdom. And the reality is we can now do something about it. And in fact, if we all do the right things, we can actually reduce the global burden of dementia dramatically. So I was, I really wanted to have you on the show today to help get the message out there to the public that there is something that can be done for people that have memory impairment, cognitive decline, dementia, early Alzheimer's, because I think people assume that this is just a hopeless situation and nothing can be done. You're absolutely right, and this is what we're told. We're told by the various experts that there's nothing that can be done, Uh, and we have spent the last 30 years in the laboratory looking at the underlying mechanisms that drive the disease. So, so here's the issue. You know, when I was a little boy, there was a guy that would go around saying, you know, I'm working on my second billion dollars. Everybody would say, wow, that's amazing. He'd say, yeah, the first one was too hard, so I decided to skip that one and just go on to the second. And unfortunately, that's exactly what we've done as physicians and researchers. We've tried to treat a disease skipping 
understanding how it actually is caused. And so people have said, well, you know, it's too hard to figure out what's actually causing Alzheimer's. Let's just try to develop a drug and see if we can treat it. So when you go into a physician and you have cognitive decline, the physician does not evaluate why you have it. They might do your you know, serum sodium and serum potassium and maybe some thyroid tests, but they don't look at the many different factors that actually contribute to it. Furthermore, they assume that it's going to be one thing. You know, Someday we'll know, quote, the cause and the treatment of Alzheimer's. But as you indicated earlier, that's not the way it works. What we discovered is that there are dozens and dozens of different contributors. This is not like pneumococcal pneumonia where you have one pathogen. This is a complex illness. You know, again, no different than things like cancer. When you ask about cancer, you know, there are chemical carcinogens and there's smoking and there's too much exposure to sun and on and on and on. There are many things that may contribute to developing a tumor. And we found the same thing with Alzheimer's. There are many things that contribute to this. So if you have chronic inflammation, for example, due to Lyme disease or due to specific pathogens, oral bacteria, leaky gut, uh, too many trans fats, too much sugar, all of these things, they can contribute. Similarly, if you have a decrease in trophic support, estradiol, testosterone, thyroid hormone, all these things, on and on and on. So there are dozens and dozens of these contributors. We evaluate them all to determine for each person what are the contributors to your cognitive decline or your risk for cognitive decline. Then you can address all these things. And as you indicated earlier, you can also subtype and say, okay, this person has more of an inflammatory subtype or an atrophic subtype or a glycotoxic subtype, which is sugar-related and insulin-resistance-related, or a toxic subtype. And they're, of course, addressable differently. But when you start to address all these different things, you then see for the first time people turning around. So what Dr. Bredesen just said there is, uh, um, and, and as you started out so beautifully just saying, um, to just understand the physiology, to understand the underlying mechanisms, to get to the root cause of why this is happening in the first place, and that there can be components of inflammation within that puzzle, there can be components of infections within that puzzle, there can be components of not enough hormones and components of toxins. So Dr. Bredesen, can you talk just briefly about infections because when I took your course and I learned your protocol, I was quite shocked at how infections can have such a big impact on our brain health. Absolutely, and this is such a critical point. Uh, we think of Alzheimer's as something where your brain makes these amyloid, you know, these, quote, sticky amyloid plaques. And, of course, much of the the pharmacological approach has been about getting rid of these things. And the, the assumption has been, oh, these are the things that are, quote, causing Alzheimer's. And that's a misunderstanding. These things are actually the mediators. Yes, they're, you know, they're part of what's downsizing the brain. But your brain is making this. Alzheimer's disease fundamentally is a protective response. Who knew? A protective response to these different agents. And as you mentioned, chronic pathogens. So we think now 
of amyloid as being like napalm. Imagine that you know you're there uh, in your country and someone is invading, someone crosses your borders, all the bad guys are coming across. So okay, you're going to put down napalm as a, a trying to kill the invaders. In this case, it's bacteria, it's spirochetes, it's molds, it's fungi. Uh, it's viruses. So you actually make this stuff as an antimicrobial, and this was a first reported actually a few years ago from Harvard, from Dr. Robert Moyer and Dr. Ruby Tanzi. Very interesting results. So you're actually trying to kill these various pathogens. And in so doing, of course, you are destroying some of your arable soil and you are downsizing your country. In this case, of course, you're downsizing your neural network. You have an amazing network with almost a quadrillion connections and you are downsizing this when you are fighting. And as you can imagine, if you are chronically fighting, you're chronically putting down napalm, you are making your country smaller and smaller and smaller. And that's exactly what's going on in these brains. So you're absolutely right. And in fact, for years, people hadn't recognized. But what's now been shown in the brains of patients with Alzheimer's, some will have Lyme disease, some will have specific viruses, such as herpes. Some will have oral bacteria, such as P. gingivalis. Some will have various fungi, such as candida. So there are all sorts of different pathogens that, in fact, can get into your brain, and you are putting this stuff down to to fight them. And so if you have undiagnosed chronic Lyme disease or babesiosis, which also is coming from the ticks that give you Lyme, then you are at risk for Alzheimer's disease. And you need to identify that. And as you indicated earlier, root cause is the absolutely critical piece. You need to understand what is driving this problem. Again, it's no different than what has been going on for you know, 35 years, started originally by, you know, by Dean Ornish. Uh, if you have cardiovascular disease, you want to address all of the different contributors. If your cardiologist told you, okay, Dr. Carey, you know, you cut out the French fries, but don't worry about the milkshakes and the cheeseburgers and the, you know, and the cupcakes, you'd say, hey, you're a lousy cardiologist. So we really need to be doing the same thing with the brain, looking at all the different causes. And in fact, uh, pathogens are a very common contributor to this problem. You know, what's so interesting I always find when I'm talking to my patients about pathogens and hunting down infections is they go, oh, no, I'm fine. Yeah. I, I feel fine. And, and, and just like you said, in the brains of Alzheimer's patients, we see these pathogens in the brain. So, of course, you're going to feel fine. But we want to hunt down the underlying cause of what's triggering that plaquing in the brain. And it's a very... It's a very complex puzzle, isn't it, to, to find the where's the inflammation coming from, what toxins are there, what hormones are to balance, what infections are there. That is such a critical point. So, you know, 21st century medicine is so much different than 20th century medicine that we all learned and unfortunately is still being practiced in the vast majority of medical centers. So in 20th century medicine, we were all taught about these infections. You get a specific thing like pneumococcal pneumonia and, you know, you just need to, you feel horrible, you have an acute illness, it's simple, and now you treat it with one antibiotic and hopefully you get better. 
uh, of course, as we started to learn about things like tuberculosis, we started to find, oh, wait a minute, you can actually have TB in your lung. You can find scarring that's been there for many, many years. So you can actually reach this detente if your overall immune system is up to it. If it fails, of course, then the TB can take over. But what it turns out is that you really have a long-term, almost detente with many of these organisms. So they live in your brain for many years, or they can live other places as well, as you know, other organs. And so the old concept that, you know, you either have an infection and you're fighting it or it's gone uh, is, is really overly simplistic. Now we have these long-term relationships. You may have long-term cytomegalovirus running around your blood cells. You may have long-term babesiosis in your red blood cells. You may have long-term undiagnosed Lyme disease, and that may be in your brain as well. You may have long-term herpes simplex, which you don't even know about. So, in fact, these things contribute because your body is constantly dealing with these things. So, one of the important parts of dealing with cognitive decline or risk for cognitive decline is to improve the immune support. If you could improve your immune system, then your immune system can do a better job at taking care of these things. Because as long as you are exposed and fighting these by making beta amyloid, you are going to increase your Alzheimer's, you are going to progress, or you're going to be at high risk for progression. So as we get down to it, again, it's about understanding why is the beta amyloid there? Why is the plaquing happening in the brain? What's yeah. causing that? How do we hunt things, these things down? How do we treat them? How do we manage them? And of course, all in the background, there's all the lifestyle factors that go into this as well. Diet, exercise for the body, exercise for the brain, getting good sleep, stress management, all of this kind of stuff. It's a real, it's a real balancing act to try and get um, all of the different factors and points taken care of. And Dr. Bredesen, you so eloquently have said in the past that Alzheimer's is like a roof with how many holes in it? So we originally said 36 holes. We now know about a few more. But the idea was that there we could see 36 different contributors that can all be uh, contributing to the overall problem. There is a molecular balance in the brain. You have a molecule that's called amyloid precursor protein, or APP, and this is the thing, this is the parent of that amyloid, of those plaques. So again, when you're making these things as a protective response to these various insults, you are changing a fundamental balance. And just as when you're dealing with osteoporosis, you're dealing with a balance between osteoblastic activity, making bone, and osteoclastic activity, taking up the bone. And of course, when things go right, you've got a beautiful balance there and you're constantly remodeling your bone and you've got strong, healthy bones. As you get older in some people, you have too much osteoclastic activity, that's taking up the bone, and too little osteoblastic activity, that's the making of the bone, so your bones become smaller and more brittle. 
this is the same idea. When you have Alzheimer's, you have too little synaptoblastic activity, making of the synapses, and too much synaptoclastic activity, taking down. And, you know, this is, again, there's a normal balance there. You're actively forgetting the seventh song that played on the radio on the way to work yesterday, and you're actively remembering all the important things. So over your lifetime, you have this wonderful ability to accumulate all the important knowledge, how to speak and how to calculate how to do your job and all these things. And so, of course, when you're early in this disease, for many people, the first thing that goes is this ability to get new knowledge. Your brain is, again, protecting itself. It's keeping the most important things, you know, how to, how to uh, do things like do your job and how to calculate and how to speak and how to read. And you may, at the beginning, lose the ability to remember the TV show from tonight, like Friends Rerun, that sort of thing. So what? That doesn't give you a major problem. People do quite well in the early stages, and that's actually a problem because they don't seek attention. That's exactly when you should be going in, either for prevention or for the very, very first symptoms. So as you said, 36 holes in the roof, and of course for each person, the holes are a different size. Each hole is different. If you are extremely low on your vitamin D, that hole in your roof is large. If you're very good with your vitamin D, and I don't just mean within normal limits, I mean optimal, then that hole is closed, and so forth and so on, down each of the different 36. If you've got Lyme disease, then that, you know, that hole is open, and you've got to fix that one. And so you want to address as many of these as you can. And that's, again, when you, when you begin to see these dramatic improvements in people. So one of the things that you mentioned was about early cognitive decline, which means that we start, losing, we start having issues with our memory. We start having those senior moments. So basically, you're saying that should not be ignored. We should look into that because that's a sign of something brewing that we can start addressing now because the longer you wait, the more damage that happens and the more difficult it then becomes to address. Exactly. Everybody should do either prevention or early reversal. So the, you know they're the, the four uh, four parts of Alzheimer's. So you know phase one, you're asymptomatic, um, and so that's the time to jump on things. You want to do prevention. Phase two, you have SCI or subjective cognitive impairment. That's when you know something's wrong, but your tests are still you're still showing in terms of your function your ability to think normally. But you know there's something wrong, things are, are brewing. Uh, phase three is MCI, mild cognitive impairment. Now the tests are also showing that there's something wrong, but you're still able to take care of yourself, your activities of daily living are fine. And then of course, phase four, if you don't do anything about the earlier phases, is full-blown Alzheimer's disease. And that's where you begin to lose your activities of daily living. So what we want is that everybody who's over 45, get a cognoscopy, just as you know that when you hit 50, you should have a colonoscopy. When you hit 45 or more, you should have a cognoscopy, and that simply means getting a series of blood tests uh, and also checking functionally where you stand. You can do some simple online, typically either free or very inexpensive, cognitive assessment. You can do this through 
you know, lots of things, CNS Vital Signs or Brain HQ uh, or, um, you know, Cog State or there are a whole bunch of ones. You can do a MOCA test and see where so-called, you know, this is the Montreal Cognitive Assessment. See where things stand. And so if you do those things, you can get an idea where you stand and you can begin to get on prevention or at the latest early reversal. So if you've got problems, if you're having trouble with memory, get in as early as possible. This old idea that you want to wait as long as possible because nothing could be done, that is an old-fashioned idea. There's a tremendous amount that can be done. And there's a whole website, for example, apoe4.info, that deals with people who are at high risk for Alzheimer's because of a specific gene, apoe 4 uh, apolipoprotein E4, a specific allele of the ApoE gene, uh, that therefore are at high risk for the disease. And so, it's, again, good to know that. In the past, it was said, you don't want to know that because there's nothing you can do about it. Again, that's now incorrect. If you have zero copies of that gene, and you can find out easily through your physician or through 23andMe, things like that, uh, zero copies, your lifelong chance of developing Alzheimer's, about 9% have a single copy, it's about 30%. If you have two copies, it's over 50%. So most likely you will develop it during your lifetime. So get on prevention, prevent yourself from getting this. If you start to have symptoms, get on early reversal, get on an optimal program. You may want to have a health coach, work with your functional medicine physician who can address all of these different things that form the root cause contributors. So for the listeners out there, Dr. Bredesen mentioned that cognoscopy, and uh, he has that li- the list of tests written in his book when he talks about a cognoscopy, and um, the vast majority of them are simple blood tests that can be done through your functional medicine doctor, through your family doctor, uh, that plus doing some cognitive testing, which is very easy to do. Um, Dr. Bredesen, I find so many patients come in and and their doctor says, or, you know, they, they tell me the story. Yeah, my doctor says I have dementia. And then I say, well, what tests have they done? Crickets. Nothing, really. And 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 you mentioned it during our training together. I've heard that also from Dr. Karazian, that neurologists, they, they don't do, like, full panels to really look for the root underlying causes that this is something that we need to ask for. That's exactly right. And, you know, people have assumed that you can't tell from a blood test what's actually going on. So the the problem has been that you go in, you get very few, if any, tests. And so you end up with someone telling you, yeah, there's nothing we can do. In fact, um, I give people the analogy. If you took your car in and, and, you know, there were it was getting older and it was just simply not working well. And they said, oh, yeah, we recognize this. We see it all the time. This is called car not working syndrome. And you said, well, well wait a minute. I mean, you're not telling me why it's not working. And they say, no, nobody knows. And you say, well, don't, don't you want to check a few things like the gas and the oil and the transmission fluid and these various things? They say, no, no, those tests aren't reimbursed, so we can't do them. And so you say, well, wait a minute, then you're, you're just telling me the car is, you know, yep, your car is going to stop at some point and there's nothing we can do about it. Well, this is the same sort of thing. Saying that it's Alzheimer's doesn't tell you what causes it. So you need to look into this. You need to increase the data set size. You need to know, and that's, that was the whole point of the research over the last 30 years, to determine what are the driving mechanisms. And what we realized is you can actually see what's causing the problem, and it's not just one thing. The typical person we see 
who has cognitive decline has between 10 and 25 different contributors to the cognitive decline. And we want to address as many of them as possible. The good news is when you get over the hump, in fact, you actually start seeing people improve. And in fact, you actually uh, will snap the other holes shut if you can get beyond a certain threshold ahead of time. Unfortunately, you don't know what the threshold is. So you want to address as many of these things as possible. But as you now do that, you can actually see improvement. Again, no different than what you see with heart disease. When you get all the numbers optimized, people actually start picking up the plaques in their coronary arteries or other arteries instead of laying down more. And that's just what we see with cognitive decline. So we do the cognoscopy, we do the baseline blood work, full blood panel, and baseline cognitive testing. We see where you're at, we see what needs to be improved on, we put together a protocol of treatment, and then in the future we redo those tests to see what level of improvement is happening. So not only are you feeling better subjectively, but objectively, are your lab markers getting better? Are your cognitive tests getting better? So, Dr. Bredesen, I know that you have multiple research papers out there now um, published about um, case studies proving your methods are effective. So can you talk about uh, one or two of those patients that you've worked with and like where they were and how they're doing now? Sure, yeah, and we've published, uh, as you mentioned, we published a couple of different papers on this. Uh, we've, we've published from the lab over 220 papers, but just on, on the clinical approach here, just four. We're now actually writing the next one on the next 50 people who showed objective improvements. And this is now from physicians we've trained from you know 10 different countries and all over the U.S., uh, and so we're very excited that different people are just are getting you know, wonderful results. Uh, in fact, I just, just got a nice note from Dr. Dave Jenkins from Australia, who has six people who've shown improvement objectively, uh, and so very exciting to see. So the, I can give you an example, someone actually who went to a, a major healthcare system in the United States uh, who had uh, well-documented Alzheimer's, and actually she wasn't so early on, unfortunately. She had a MOCA score of 18, uh, and the, the MOCA scores go from 0 to 30. Uh, and so 26 to 30 is within normal limits. Uh, typically, 20 to 25 is MCI or mild cognitive impairment. And anything below 20 is typically associated with Alzheimer's disease. And she had a score of 18, was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. Her driving driver's license was taken away from her. Uh, she went on the program and actually went back a year later, uh, and her score was 27. Uh, of course, she know, she had known, her husband had known that she was much better, and she's just gotten her, so interestingly, she's just gotten her driver's license back. Uh, and the nurse practitioner who actually followed up with her in the healthcare, uh, in the healthcare system uh, was shocked and came out and said to the husband, well, wait a minute, you know, what have you done to her? She's, she's so much better than she was a year ago. We just don't see this. Uh, and so, uh, you know, and again, they they adjusted you. One of the things about this is that you tweak different things. That She tweaked her ability to get into ketosis, for example. So one of the things that actually does help your brain with cognition is to develop mild ketosis. 
which she did, and they actually measured her ketones. You can do that very simply and inexpensively. Uh, and that actually helped, was one of the things that helped her. She also had exposure to specific pathogens and toxins. These were identified, um, and she had these addressed. Uh, so that's one of the stories. We have an, another guy who, uh, who went in um, and had his... Uh, his California verbal learning test and his neuropsych exam, very poor. So he was early in the in Alzheimer's, APOE4 positive, this particular person. Uh, and uh, his California verbal learning test was at the third percentile for his age. Just really couldn't remember, you know, locker combination, uh, friends, you know, people that he would meet, things like that. And again, you lose, typically you lose the, the new memories first. And so uh, people he had recently met, he couldn't remember. He's gone back after two years on this. And it typically takes three to six months for people to show clear improvement. And you want to continue to iterate, continue to tweak and improve things. And his California verbal learning test you know, went up to 84th percentile. He had you know, dramatic improvements, and I talked a little bit about him uh, in the book. Um, he's doing very, very well and continues to do very well. He's now been on this uh, for about four and a half years and doing very, very well. The most important thing of all here is that people who show improvement show sustained improvement. And we had one woman who came off the program after showing improvement four different times. And each time within 10 days to two weeks, she started to decline again. So you want to stay on this. You want to continue to optimize these things to continue to have a sustained improvement. Uh, now, not everybody improves. Many people do, but not everyone. It is easier if you are early on. That's why we recommend people please come in early. It's easier, of course, if you're compliant, if you do the program. And so often people will work with a health coach to continue to optimize things and continue to, to do the right things. It's easier if you have subtype 1, 1.5, or 2. So these are the inflammatory, glycotoxic, or sweet, um, and, or atrophic harder if you have the type 3 and if you have specific toxins because you've actually got to identify those and there can be dozens and you've got to get rid of those. Uh, so there are different things that make it harder or easier but for many people and typically for most people if you do the right things over time you will show uh, improvement. Now some people will improve and then plateau so we have for example a woman uh, who had a MOCA score of zero. She could not speak. She could not uh, dress herself. She couldn't. She was really in very late stages, uh, and uh, you know couldn't talk talk to her husband, and so forth and so on. Uh, she has improved, uh, which surprised me actually. Um, she can now dress herself. She can now ride her bicycle, dance with her husband, speak to her husband, but she's certainly not back to normal. So, you know, what? she's kind of plateaued there, and okay, what do we need to do next to improve things? So one of the possibilities is uh, people are beginning to look into stem cells. Do stem cells improve? And, you know, people have looked at stem cells for various neurodegenerative conditions, but they haven't done it on the background of improving the various parameters. So what we say is, um, it's as if you're trying to build a house while it's burning down. You want to get rid of all the things that's burning it down before you actually start adding the stem cells, before you start building things back up. So we're very enthusiastic to see what happens when you get rid of all the inducers, all the contributors, when you're now adding back the stem cells. And we'll see how it goes. So these patients are very complex, 
and like you said really once a patient is on their program they should see some level of improvement within three to six months usually and if they're if they don't that's one of two things either number one they're really not following their program 100 percent, or number two we just have to dig deeper and find out okay what else is there that's blocking the progress that we need to dig up and it's you know i talk to patients and i kind of explain that this is like an iceberg like you have no idea how big um, what's underneath the surface really is that we need to work on that is a great way to put it and what's happened is you are dealing with these things for years without knowing about it And in fact one of the things we see is people will sequester the toxins it's a way that they protect themselves when they're young they will put it into their bones and then, at, for example, as women approach menopause or as men approach andropause, they will start changing their ratio of their you know, osteoblastic to osteoclastic. So now you're starting to release some of that bone. You're starting now to break down a little bit of it. That's not to say you have osteoporosis yet, but you're beginning that process that maybe 10 or 20 years down the road could result in osteoporosis. So what do you do? You start releasing the very toxins that you shielded your body for when you were younger. So this is a very common time to have symptoms around the time of menopause. So for the listeners out there, I hope that you have more hope when it comes to uh, memory loss and dementia and Alzheimer's. And Dr. Bredesen, we just have a few more minutes left. So um, just a couple of questions here. So first off, I know that there's listeners out there right now who have a family member or a loved one with dementia or Alzheimer's or that they have a family history and that they can see that their cognition is changing. What are the next steps that they should take at this point? Yes. So please find a physician who looks at Alzheimer's and treats the very the different contributors. Take a look at the book. As you mentioned, it goes so it's called The End of Alzheimer's. It's from Random House. You can get it very easily, uh, you know, on Amazon or Barnes and Noble or at you know, many different places. Uh, it was on New York Times bestseller list for five months. Uh, so it's it's readily available. It's coming out in 25 different languages. Uh, so it's just come out in Japanese, for example. And so you can get it in other languages uh, if you prefer to look at it in that. Look through the different things and get in as early as possible, preferably prevention. If the person is very, very late in the course, uh, then consider having all of the children come in early. If you're at high risk, as you mentioned, you want to come in early and get things checked. Make it so that we have a world in which dementia is a rare problem. We can make Alzheimer's a rare disease if we do, if we work together, if we do the right things, if we get evaluated early on. Those are, so that's, that's the key. You know, after I did my training with you, the first thing I did was ordered 23andMe test kits to have my genes tested for me and my husband to see, hey, do we have the Alzheimer's gene or not? Like that's how, it's like you want to know as as soon as possible so you can start treating it as soon as possible. Dr. Bredesen, you also mentioned that you've trained patients and, I mean, uh, practitioners in, I think you said 10 different countries, including Canada? 10 different countries, including (laughs) Canada and all over the United States as well, yes. And so how do listeners find a doctor or practitioner that's been trained under you? 
yeah, you can either go on drbredesen.com uh, or you can actually uh, email support at drbredesen.com and they can get you hooked up with someone who does this. Dr. Bredesen, how can our listeners find out more about you? And again, can you mention your book? Yeah, so you can either, so we go through all the background in the book and all the different tests to get and the optimal values that you want to target because these are not this just the standard, you know, within normal limits. That's been something, unfortunately, that, you know, doctors have looked at for years not optimizing the, the metabolism. And as you indicated earlier, basically, as the metabolism goes, so goes the cognition. So take a look at the book or take a look at the uh, website, drredison.com. Um, we also have a relatively new Facebook, uh, and so you can also take a look at that. So for the listeners out there, I'll make sure to find all of those resources and put them in the podcast notes so that you can easily find Dr. Bredesen, his resources, and his book. Dr. Bredesen, thank you so much for being my special guest today. This has been an awesome interview. Thanks very much, Dr. Carey. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. All right, that wraps up this very special episode of the Functional Medicine Radio Show with Dr. Dale Bredesen. And I want to thank you, our listeners, for tuning in today. And I'd like to invite you back next time for another episode of the Functional Medicine Radio Show. As always, I'm your host, Dr. Carrie Drizga, the Functional Medicine Doc. Have a great week, everyone. You've been listening to the Functional Medicine Radio Show with your host, Dr. Carrie Drizga, known internationally as the Functional Medicine Doc. Dr. Carey is committed to helping patients find the root cause of their health problems and fixing the cause with natural treatments so they can feel normal again. Dr. Carey is the founder of Functional Medicine Ontario and is the author of the hit book, Reclaim Your Energy and Feel Normal Again. Please tell your friends about the Functional Medicine Radio Show, and we'll see you next week with more from Dr. Carey.